So Lina X, we sometimes say it's something like the Google Maps for the IT in a company. It actually helps organizations to map out what software they have, for what processes that software is used, which organization is using it. And we sometimes say which business capabilities, that means which functionality is in that software. Welcome to Rewrite Tech, the Deconium Developer Podcast. I'm Geraldine. And I'm Brad. And together we look forward to discussing trends and developments in the tech industry. Each podcast, we have one different person we feature. And today we're looking forward to speaking to Andre Christ. Before founding Lean IX, Andre was working as a managing consultant for DHL. And then in 2012, decided it was time to found his own company, which we're looking forward to learning more about today. Welcome, Andre. Thank you so much. Looking forward to talk to you guys. So we'd like to start off by taking a little bit of a delve into your past. What was that moment like in 2012 or even before, depending on how long it actually took to set up Lean IX, where you were sitting at DHL thinking, my goodness, they really need some help to bring all of their <laughs> IT in order. What sparked the idea to found your company? Well, actually, the idea came probably from a time even be before DHL. I had worked for a number of startups before that and had been engaged at one of the investors, which is today pretty active in Germany, the Hightech Gründerfonds, as a working student. So I had different touch points, not only as a software developer in a startup, but also looking from the investment side, but then actually decided to join DHL. And during that time, it was always in my mind, would there be a point of time when I could go back and start my own company? And there you go. After four years at DHL, I've been at that point where it totally makes sense. Okay, so DHL was a little bit more of a springboard, so to speak. But working in a big corporate environment like that, did that also give the seeding idea for what the product of LeanIX could be? Exactly. The time at DHL was very, very helpful for me starting a company in the enterprise software space. Throughout my four years, I understood what it takes to take decisions in a company, what those companies actually do for purchasing software and how they approach problems. So throughout those four years, I worked in the internal management consulting company, DHL Consulting, and I had a number of projects going on, which always had the desire to understand the starting point in a different business unit. So understanding what the IT landscape looks like and what actually all those IT systems are for. And what I found out is that the different parts of the organization was always struggling to get that data together because it was in the heads of many, many people. And so the company wasted time and a lot of effort to get those critical information together. And that's why I looked at the software market, which is called Enterprise Architecture and found out it's a great time to actually come up with an idea and found an own business and approach things differently than they have been done in the past. So maybe you can walk us through a little bit what introducing your product to a new company looks like. I don't mean the part where you have to convince the boss that this is a good idea to bring on board, which I'm sure for all the, you know, all the obvious reasons, more efficiency and smoother processes is maybe not even the hardest part. But what, from a more technical point of view, does it look like when you introduce LeanIX to a new corporation? Yeah, maybe start with what, what problem it solves. So LeanIX... We sometimes say it's something like the Google Maps for the IT in a company. 
it actually helps organizations to map out what software they have, for what processes that software is used, which organization is using it. And we sometimes say which business capabilities, that means which functionality is in that software. So it's very visual in LeanIX to understand this whole relationship between software systems and the organization and looking at large maps, drilling that down to all the way to the details. And that's why the analogy to Google Maps sometimes works really well. So we're solving this problem of getting an overview, getting transparency in the IT software landscape in a company. And sometimes our customers not only have hundreds of different applications, they sometimes have thousands or even 10,000s of different applications scattered across their organization, which is sometimes in many, many countries. DHL, for example, is in, in more, than, more than 90 countries in some of the business units. So that's the problem we're solving. And when we're introducing that to the organization, we usually sell to the CIO or the CTO in the organization. And they have this problem that they are at the point where it's hard to actually understand how actually all that ties together and using spreadsheets or PowerPoint or Visio no longer really works for them. And so what we do with them, we set up a trial, they can try out the software on their own, and then we get into a purchasing process usually. So that's in general how we approach things. That's, I mean, from a large organization standpoint, mapping the different technologies, the, the services, the platforms, where it's all even hosted, held, responsibility is always difficult in these large organizations. And so what are the major achievements that your product does and accomplishes in the first couple of years of operations inside of a company? Yeah, that's an important question, especially in the enterprise context to come up with a strong, solid business case. We have reached out for analysts to help us figuring that out and putting that on a bit more data-driven basis. So we've worked with analysts like Forrester in the past uh, to come up with business cases calculated and to, to talk you to some of the, the areas where we're helping them with. So some of our customers report that they have now 85% less time for less time spent into reporting. So preparing presentations, preparing data flows or coming up with maps. So that's all reducing the time to get quicker to that. Or what they do is they are 40% quicker in coming up with application queries. So a person asks for, do we have that software already in the organization? And sometimes it takes weeks to figure out where it's used by whom. So we reduce that time by 40%. Other organizations look for cost savings. They report that they have, for example, 25 systems retired in the first six months after they have rolled out X, And that contributes to tangible savings in the IT. These are probably more the traditional saving areas. If you ask the companies who are deeply engaged in, in digital, for them, it's all around speeding up the time to onboard a new employee. You probably know Zalando is a customer of ours um, since many years. For them, bringing people up to speed, giving them an overview what software is all in place. These are important metrics if you're growing strongly and therefore having a single repository where you can go to and understand what all your teams have built, that's pretty crucial. So I believe we dramatically reduce the time to onboard new people and make sure they have a good understanding of what's out there in the IT. 
That's great. And I love your approach with regards to to value driven for the businesses, because in the SaaS field, it's difficult sometimes where it's some people, especially some CFOs look at it from just a cost saving perspective, but you also look at it from the data, the time, the cost, it's a full 360. And I think that probably attributes to why Leona X is so successful. And speaking of success, you currently about what a month and a half ago, uh, finalized series D funding. So congratulations uh, on that of 80 million Thank euros, you. total investment now 120 million, but you close this last round in the middle of a pandemic. You know, you were probably negotiating it at the beginning of the pandemic or maybe at the end of last year. So when it was really kicking off, what challenges did you have in, in gaining VC funding during the times of Corona? Because, you know, people always say pandemics and these big issues is great for, for people to start new businesses, but there's still that massive risk. So how did you overcome this to scale up your operations during a time when a lot of organizations were not scaling? Yeah, you're exactly right. The process started end of January and I was on my way back from vacation actually in New Zealand and I had a stopover in San Francisco and we were already, let's say, to a certain degree scared what was going on in the world. And that was where literally my first meeting in this fundraise took place at the time in the US and kicked off this whole thing. So starting on probably the the 1st of February, we actually dig deeper into, into the fundraise with this whole yeah, pandemic increasing at the same time. I think essentially uh, Lina X has today a repeatable business model where you have recurring software as a service fees. You see good metrics about customer retention, net dollar retention, which for an investor makes it easier to understand that such a business model will survive even through a pandemic. Of course, also, in these days, we have organizations who have complete spend freezes, and that makes it actually harder than to sell in those days. But in general, our software is perceived as quite business critical because it's either used to accelerate your growth, so you need it, or it's needed to keep a business continuity alive because you have to understand what are the business critical software systems you're using, or it's used in bad economic times to figure out where can you do savings. So from an investment perspective, it's quite robust. And going through the process we had, we definitely have seen that it has an impact on the ability to react faster from an investor perspective. So everyone was more careful. And it's obviously also a challenge not being able to meet in person from both sides. For us at LinaX and for me personally, it's very important to get a very good feel for the people who are on board, which you deal with uh, through a longer time because you actually enter in, to some degree into a marriage with those people coming on board. And not having enough time in person obviously is a topic in that. So it's been an interesting challenge, but we were very glad to find with Goldman Sachs a very strong new partner and also with Inside Partners and DTCP here from Germany, two companies who have been with DinaX longer, who continued to be very, very interested and committed into what we're building. I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about what you just said in terms of VC money isn't just a necessary and powerful tool to get a startup off the ground and to scale, reach in a product, or to maybe stabilize it in critical times, but also to 
ensure continuity and sort of stability and growth. Because I often really wonder about that in a sort of wider economic sense and context, and especially in our German business culture. So as we said in the beginning, you've been around since 2012. You're not a small company by any measure anymore, not just in terms of the VC funding you've received, but also the number of employees, I think around 230 employees you have by now. And And also the kind of customers you reach, you mentioned Salando and like you're servicing some of the big players out there that we have in Germany. So I was wondering in general, how do you balance the transition? Is that something you're seeing yourself from a startup to a to an SME, to a sort of regular established enterprise in Germany? And maybe also thinking about what you just said, where is it necessary to have this VC money for continuity And where, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking about the old school German SME person who's like, but isn't your customer base, your continuity? Why would you need any ABC money anymore? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I think the first and foremost signal we got as a feedback from our customers was they were very excited to see that happening because it allows us to build an independent large technology business. And that's important to them. They love working with us. They love the speed at which we're developing new products at which we come with our service. So for them, us being acquired too early would be actually, let's say, a more negative thing than positive. So seeing such an investment is actually a big commitment of those companies that LinaX could at one time become a very, very large technology business. And for our customers, that's appealing. So it's well reflected in our customer base and i have a lot of exchange with a number of, of our customers and they have been involved to a certain degree in the fundraising process too so typically our investors speak to up to 15 customers up front and interview them what the product is like what the service is like so and and i get the feedback too from them if we're doing the right move so for me it's a big chance that We keep building what we're doing and we don't lose this track of being quick and fast in, in our ability to provide a better product, a better service to our customers. And this is obviously where the VC money is giving us a lot of stability. So being able to build out this big vision and also to think about the one or the other expansion of our product line. So we have just expanded our single product end of last year into a second product. And this is a venture in itself. So it's almost like starting a new startup within a startup. And it requires money again, because the market entry is different. The personas you're selling to are different. And that's why there's new investment needed. And another area is obviously the area of potential inorganic growth at a stage where we are. So we are also analyzing that in the market. So it gives us a lot of optionality now. And for our customers, it's been a very good sign that we can build a big technology company and Goldman Sachs, Insight Partners and others believe in that. Mm, that's really interesting. That take that customer satisfaction and stability goes hand in hand also with raising VC money in your case. And so it sounds like you're definitely still like the CEO of a startup in your mind and not so much the CEO of a traditional SME. Is that the way your company's built and just how your mindset is? Or how do you see that transition happening for LeanIX? Yes, I would say that I feel we're probably in phase three. I'm with this business, as you know, more than eight years now. We had a bootstrapping phase for the first three years when essentially it was just my co-founder and I. We turned into a startup really 
only three years after we founded it because then we started getting people on board. So that was for a number of years, probably startup phase. And you could say probably since Insight Partners or DTCP invested in 2017 or 18, that was when we switched into scaling or growth mode. So I feel we are from a stage perspective, we're like in stage three or four. However, from the mindset, we try to be as lean, as quick in decision-making and setting up things. But of course, at that size, we're 240 employees now. We have four legal entities, one in the US, one in India, one in the Netherlands. And we now have three offices here in Europe already, in, in the Netherlands, in Munich and, and in Bonn. So it starts to become more decentral and, and therefore it's different than just being in one room, which we have been when we were just 20 people at LinaX. And now even in Bonn, we are on, on three floors, soon on four floors. That changes the dynamic and requires a lot more investment into communication and leadership skills. It's good that you mentioned them because that's something that Brad and I were wondering about yeah. as we were preparing for this podcast. We felt that your choice of locations were quite exotic, let's say, for a startup because like Bonn and Hyperba and Utrecht, they don't seem to be the most obvious choices when it comes to startup hubs. How come you ended? I mean, like Bonn, maybe from your personal career and having been with DHL before, but how did you end up in these special places? <laughs> Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I have been struggling with that question probably for two years in the beginning of founding. I frequently actually traveled to Berlin to see what was going on. And I was having this debate with myself. Was it the right idea to found a business in a city or in a region which is not really known for building a fast-growing company? I had no idea where Linux was growing to. So at this stage... I must say, I'm over this question. I'm fully convinced that Bonn is a great place for us. It has a lot of advantages right now for us because we've created a brand around LinaX. We are attracting people from Cologne, from all across this region. And obviously, in looking at the different companies here in Bonn with DHL, Telecom and so on, we are, I believe, a viable alternative now to, to other big companies. That's really, really different in Berlin where you have a lot of choices and a lot of options and you're probably always like on the hop to the next big thing. And this is obviously from an employer perspective a bit different here, but also from an employee perspective, Bonn is super attractive to families. You have a lot mm. of recreational area here around. You can go hiking and biking and uh, that's all very near. The, com the, the city has around 350 people living here. So it's fairly small, but you have plenty of stuff because the government left a lot of museums and infrastructure here when they left to Berlin. So it's, I would say, I often say it's pretty underrated. Once you're here, you enjoy it a lot. So I think as of today, we're quite happy that we're here. And uh, with the choice of Boston, that was clearly on purpose because we wanted to have a close connection to our team in the US. It's just six hours in time difference. If you fly into Boston, it's the most convenient time or convenient way to actually go into the US because from the airport to our office in, in the first place, it was like 20 minutes. And uh, if you think about New York, if you land at JFK, it probably takes you two or three hours to actually get to the office. It's much more complicated. And that's why we decided East Coast, uh, Boston would be a perfect location with all the talent for software startups around there. Yeah, 
I'm an East Coast guy. I'm from Toronto, so I agree with that, of course, okay. 100%. Yeah, you, you make a great point about the the Berlin scene as well. Geraldine and I have been in this scene for, for many years, and I can personally attest I have jumped from one corporation to another many times in Berlin, and it's almost like there's so many things going on, you, uh, you get a little overwhelmed. So to have like... I like the way you phrase it, that you become a, a, a viable alternative in your region, because sometimes these regions are just dominated by these large brands. And some people feel, I don't want to say trapped, but they feel like this is the only place that they're to stay in their region. This progression needs to go. So it's really fascinating, but I need to know something because I've worked in, I've worked for Daimler. I've worked for Volkswagen. I've worked for these large organizations. How the hell do you build a product like this. Okay. So this is a massively known issue in large organizations, but you also yourself as a founder and CEO, you need to know all of these different technologies to some point in how they play together and how you can actually navigate them. So how did you take this on in mapping these wildly different tech stacks from, you know, C sharp all the way to like Java to all these different things that are working together. How did you manage? How did you approach this massive product that you were building? Yeah, you're right. It's a fair amount of complexity in that and it keeps ever growing because new technologies are added to that. I think there's one thing which also a lot of VCs and investors keep struggling sometimes with is that not everything is actually automatable. So you cannot just automate and scan everything. If you look at our business, what we do, we rely on the fact that we bring together a picture of the IT landscape, which you could say is a hybrid of people putting their knowledge in and leveraging APIs and, and other systems to get in data. But it's not an approach where you actually are able to push on the button and then you get a picture of the whole IT landscape automatically. There are approaches where you deploy agents onto servers, which is in large corporations, by the way, very difficult because let's imagine you need to deploy agents on production servers at big banks or big shops. And then this, the server goes down because you've deployed this agent. People freak out. Yeah. And, and that's why deploying software agents and automating that infrastructure is difficult at times too. So that's why I believe a more hybrid approach is needed. So getting, providing a simple enough solution like Lina X so that you can get an overview of your IT landscape and then connect it with automated information from scanning systems, from process automation. I think that's the trick what we are doing to get, get hold of that complexity. What we're also doing, we're providing a database of software life cycles. That means if you put in a technology like .NET Framework, Java, whatever, Angular or, or whatever, uh, we provide them with the lifecycle information. So it's kind of also we're providing some content together with that. And I believe that mix of open APIs, good usability, content we're providing, and narrow focus on a use case, that way, that's why our solution can actually work and help companies solve this, this massive problem. Definitely. And to be honest, I had some skepticism when, uh, when I read the product originally, I was like, how is it going to scan everything? But I love the hybrid approach you're taking because 
I completely agree. And I, and I think people also think, oh, uh, there's there's a oh, machine. Just put the machine learning button, put the AI button in there and it will just scan everything and everything will be done. I love the kind of hybrid approach because now you have the consultancy, you have the expertise in it. You now have to do an analysis and the product is built catered to the organization, which I think makes it more attractive. So the, the consultancy aspect, I understand with the with the analysis of the products and services that teams are using. But how does AI that you mentioned before play into all this in terms of automating the product offerings once the initial analysis is done? Yeah, so one of the big things we're doing right now is we're automatically scanning the public cloud environments of AWS, of Azure, and Google Cloud. As an example, we are pulling in data from Kubernetes to automate that. So that is a big area where I strongly believe that automation is key. And the trick is then to aggregate that information to a meaningful level. So no one can actually make meaning out of 50 virtual machines deployed on AWS. But what if you would know that some of those virtual machines would run in Europe, but they have not been protected with the latest patches and they're still running on outdated machine images, while others of those virtual machines are running in the US and data is actually floating between US and Germany. So these are the questions you are asking on a more IT management level. Is data leaving the US because that's a big topic for data privacy? Is it running on outdated technology? Can I still deploy into my Lambda functions because the version I'm using of Node.js or whatever is still up to date? So these are questions you cannot simply solve with the consoles AWS and Azure is delivering to you. So that's why we're bringing this intelligence into our system to help product teams more and more answer those questions. And that's a that's actually a separate product we've launched besides what we call enterprise architecture. So we now have this, this one enterprise architecture product since eight years, and we have what we call the cloud native suite, which helps more the product teams to get a grip around what they have deployed into, into the cloud or into Kubernetes environments. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, I think that's a really good approach because uh, the product teams are ones that drive the product strategy in the, in the execution of it. Engineering teams understand these things uh, and can work together, but it's, it needs to be a full suite. So if you're building something specifically for engineering teams, it's not going to work for the product people who actually need to work on the overall product strategy. So great approach. And there's one big thing that I think that large organizations just overlook. And it's this aspect of redundant redundancies in your tech stack or in your company as a whole. Some people will argue that, oh, it's not hurting anybody. It's just there. It's it let it run. It's not a big deal. It's and the typical answer we hear in large organizations is, well, we can do it this way, but we've been doing it this way for years. What's the harm? What's the big deal? From your perspective, how do redundancies in companies really hurt a company overall? And how do you balance that, that culture aspect of here's what you can do, here's how you can optimize your work while also balancing the legacy of the organization? Yeah, I believe there are areas where redundancies are beneficial. So for example, if you need to build resilient systems, it totally makes sense to have redundancy, of course. But then there are areas where it starts to get very complicated in an organization where you have 
different systems for the same capability. So let's imagine, for example, you have multiple different CRM systems in place across the regions. So it's very, very hard from a holistic perspective in the company to get a picture on what's your customer, as an example. And you waste a lot of time actually to, to figure out what's your customer profile in all those systems because you need to consolidate and, and create that picture of a customer. The same, I believe, is on the deeper level, on the technology level. If you now build much more granular microservices and create redundancy across all those services, what you need to do always is replicate data from different microservices to others. So it's very important to understand where's the origin of data, where's the source of it. And if you have redundant services in your architecture, which are creating the customer data, for example, again, well, then you have probably different sources where it's coming from. You need to align them. So it's not easy because the granularity is getting so much bigger. So many more teams are working in parallel on that. That's why it's essential to have this one single pane of glass, what we're delivering with X. And looking at this idea that, which we know all from Amazon, like the two pizza teams, we have now teams distributed working on yeah, parts of the, of the stack, I believe that makes it much more important to avoid that those teams don't start building more and more services, which they thought they need, but other teams were building in parallel. So I think I like the fact that teams now can build systems distributed and much faster. You can throw them away much quicker. You can revise them, get feedback. But at the same time, there's the risk that you have a lot of duplication of functionality because you don't have an overview anymore, what is going to be built. And some of our customers have not only hundreds of microservices, they have thousands of microservices with thousands of developers. So it's getting a big complex challenge actually. Mm, and I'm sure there are many different kinds of balancing acts in there. We were speaking to Delivery Hero not so long ago with the idea that some international companies want to allow for a greater level of localization and flexible handling by their sort of, yeah, spin-offs that they have around the world. But at the same time, of course, keep an oversight and a quality assurance to their product. So I'm sure that that is an interesting discussion in every different organization that operates globally, depending on how they're structured. And I'm also sure that like you hinted at this a couple of answers ago, but I can just imagine that running LeanIX across these seas of different solutions can be really challenging in terms of the different layers of security. And you already said like that that's probably one of the bigger challenges you're facing, but maybe you can elaborate on that just a little bit more. Yeah, security always plays a big role for enterprises. That's why we have embarked on an ISO 27001 certification last year. We've completed that. So quite early on in our journey, we've made sure that we comply with a lot of security best practices. We had for a time an on-premise product some years ago because we thought for some organizations, it's important to actually store the data on-premise because it's critical data, obviously. Today, I can say we are 100% software as a service. It's all running in, in Microsoft Azure Cloud. We're providing multiple data centers around the world. And by the end of the year, we're going to be SOC 2 certified, which is even further progressing what we've started with ISO. And 
that is giving a lot of the organization the comfort that we're really enterprise ready and enterprise great. What I see is in our customer base that most of the large enterprises use single sign-on as an option with our product. We give it away for free with the normal edition. So we don't charge any more in addition for single sign-on because it has become such a standard feature for companies when they adopt software as a service. And these are some of the things we're actually doing to protect the data. But overall, I must say, comparing our data against customer data, which is in Salesforce or lead data, which is a lot of personal related data in systems like HubSpot or other marketing systems, I believe it's probably same or at least not higher criticality. So there are very proven models out there in software as a service, which companies already use. And that makes it much more easy for us in the sales process to say, look, you have all your customer data stored in Salesforce or in marketing automation systems, which are all software as a service. So why do you think it's a problem to actually store the layout or the mapping of your IT landscape in, in a SaaS system? So Today, I must say more than 300 customers all on software as a service and clearly ISO and SOC2 help us getting across that we're a very rock solid enterprise software. So we've learned about your core product, Alina9x, but we also would like to cover another product that you have in our show here because we learned that you have a podcast of your own. <laughs> so from podcaster to podcaster, we'd love to know how did you decide that you want to get into that? Was that just having more time at home and during Corona, the Corona podcast? Or yeah, what sparked the idea of having a podcast, Alina9x? Yeah, great question. That idea came actually from, from our CMO who just recently joined. Uh, she's hosting that podcast now since a couple of weeks already. So the first yeah, editions are in and I think they're, they're fantastic. We have great speakers like CIOs sharing what their challenges are. I think it comes at the right time when people now spend less time at physical events and spend more time listening to to, to podcasts. So it's been going really great so far. I like that we have more insights by, by those CIOs, CTOs who can actually share their stories, especially in those days, how they've accomplished the switch into a remote work, what they need to do to actually uplevel their application landscape, how they pull off big transformations like SAP S4 HANA. So there's so many topics you can talk about in podcasts. And I think that's why it's great. And it actually works well together with our own conferences, which we run since a number of years. We've also switched them into hybrid conferences. And I think it's probably a trend to, to think about how can we provide more content in digestible form. So I, I love the format and we're going to see a lot of very interesting series there. This is why all this went so smooth and all your answers were so precise and well-spoken. It's because you've had practice at this doing it in your own company. <laughs> It's awesome that LeanIX is doing so many different things and you, you've been a fantastic guest so far. And thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us about these topics because, you know, from one podcast to another, we love talking about uh, these interesting topics with interesting people. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us on Rewrite Tech. Thank you so much for that. We're happy to be your guests in case you want to feature us on your LeanIX podcast as well. Of course, Andre. We'll flip it. Flip, flip the roles. That's a nice idea. Absolutely. No, we seriously, I think we're, we're always very interested in learning. I think you have so much more experience with this great show. 
and and therefore we're just in the in the learning stage trying to walk and not yet running as you do so whatever exchange we can have more than appreciated it's a light jog but we'll take it <laughs> okay yeah, definitely look forward to being in touch and exchanging notes and wishing you all the best for the next steps. And thanks so much for, yeah, for being with us on Rewrite Tech today. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Brad, what's coming up next? We have some amazing guests coming up in the field of AI and robotics uh, from Deutsche Telekom. We're very excited to be talking about these uh, topics and also we'll be moving into the automotive field in the future around automation of mobility, which is also a very interesting topic in uh, the Deconium world as well. So please stay tuned, stay up to date, follow us on all the platforms on LinkedIn, on Spotify, on Apple Music. We are everywhere. You can find us everywhere. So please stay tuned for our upcoming episodes with Geraldine and myself. Thank you for tuning in. And that was Rewrite Tech.